This is the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Rule number one is you have to believe in yourself. You're the only one who doesn't think you belong in this appointment. The prospect has already validated your existence by scheduling time with you. Get it through your head you belong here. Go in there, crush it, and close the deal. A place where sales professionals can come to learn from other sales professionals and thought leaders that have mastered their craft. The difference between a good salesperson and a best-in-class salesperson is only two minutes. By spending an extra two minutes on what you might think is a mundane task in the sales game, you separate yourselves from the pack, you grow your book of business, you close more deals, and you retain your accounts. As well as their peers who are still striving for perfection to achieve their why. I have a wife and four kids. Failure is not an option. Real sales professionals. Real stories. Real results. It's no different than being a professional baseball player. You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game. This is the Power Producers Podcast. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Kyle and I have the pleasure of talking with Mr. Micah Salas today. Micah, what's going on, brother? Hey, how are you guys doing? I'm just trying to stay cool in this uh, Texas heat, man. I was telling somebody earlier, like my Father's Day involved me being in the pool up to about my armpits in water. And I know that for a fact because there is a straight line across my chest of sunburn where, <laughs> where the water was for the whole day, man. It's crazy. It was hot yesterday. It was, it was a burner here for sure. And for uh, sure. it's not, it's not going to get any better. And you know, it, no. it's, it's nice that we've gotten a little bit relaxed. I'm still kind of old school Micah that I like to wear a shirt and tie and, and a suit to go out and, and close a deal. But I got to tell you, man, when you've sweat through your suit, just by the time you've walked to the car, it's excruciating. I'm, I'm glad that people have relaxed a little bit and don't necessarily expect that every single time anymore. Yeah, it'll be, uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens after, you know, the COVID stuff kind of subsides a little bit uh, in terms of dress code and all that. There's a lot of things. I'll be curious to see how they kind of shake out, but that's one of them. Yeah, absolutely. So listen, why don't you give everybody kind of a little bit of background about who you are and how you got into the insurance industry and where you are today? All right. Um, man, I'm, so I'm 34. I'm married. Uh, been with my wife over 10 years, but I'm from Wisconsin originally and uh, got into the insurance business in 2011. Um, actually, they recruit, a recruiter from a direct writer had had done the interviews with me in college my senior year and I backed out for the last interview and said I don't really want to sell insurance that just does not sound fun so um, anyways fast forward two years from there that was in 2008 uh, he reached back out to me and said hey do you want to grab some coffee I said sure and just started connecting um, and really honestly he showed me the dollar signs and I was like okay I'm making nothing (laughs) I like what I can see here and um, jumped into insurance did a year-long training program up in um, in Minnesota and learned everything from you know policy forms and all that stuff. And um, after that, had a territory. I was working, like I said, for a direct writer, and did that for about two and a half years, selling life insurance, um, disability, group health, 
and uh, property casualty. And then about two years in or so, I was kind of starting to realize, you know, you just had some really good relationships with clients, but ultimately felt like I could only give them one option and wanted to be able to be the person that could really help them out in any situation, regardless of what the market was doing. So um, started kind of looking into independent agencies and then I moved to Texas at that same time uh, about six years ago now and have been with Marsh McLennan agency um, really ever since. So, so let me ask you, were you, is the agency you're at actually like Marsh Marsh or is it one of the acquisitions they made when they started moving into the middle market? Not, not that there's like one that's lesser than the other, but there's two pretty distinct divisions that I'm aware of inside of Marsh. One's the national, you know, the national brokerage that's whale hunters all the time. And then the other one's the one that's sort of come in and started gobbling up people that we compete against down here in, in Florida. Yeah. So I'm with, uh, yeah, Marsh's little brother, I guess you could call us. Yeah. Marsh McLennan agency, which were the, the gobbler were the, the one who's kind of trying to uh, really kind of set into the middle market space. I would call even small, you know, small business to middle market. Um, but yeah, I'm not with Marsh, the, the big, big Marsh, I guess you could say. Yeah. That's, so that's interesting. Cause I mean, I think, you, you know, that we probably have way more in common if you're playing in that space. You know, I, I would love to talk to anybody that's working for Marsh Global, but at the same time, it's a little different animal. So, so the agency that you're at, you're at right now is, has it been Marsh since you've been there or did you go through sort of a conversion? So, yeah, we're kind of a concoction. Um, when I came down to Houston, we were the only, actually we were the first acquisition, um, but this was, you know, from 2009 or something. And uh, since I've been here in the six years, they've bought uh, really three or four different agencies in, all across Texas and Louisiana that, you know, make up Marsh McLennan Agency Southwest. So um, yeah, it's it's been, I guess you could say a combination of a bunch of smaller agencies now com- coming together. Interesting. So, you know, it, it's probably a whole different world than what Kyle and I are used to because we're kind of sort of bootstrapping things as we go along to grow Florida risk from the ground up, you've got a lot of resources behind you, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it seems like almost every agency now that I compete against or is out there has the standard loss control guy, the standard claims person, um, you know, the team that can do contracts, but yeah, there's, there's definitely some resources. I, I, Personally, the one that I probably get the most value out of is just the, I don't want to say that, I guess you could say the depth of, of people, just there's a lot of different people with a lot of different experiences across the country that you can use as resources. And I, that's probably honestly one of the most helpful for me. If I come across, let's just say a moving company, I have no experience in the moving space, you know, and I can call someone who has 10 movers out of, out of uh, Washington, right? And then they're like, hey, sit, this is the things you got to be mindful of. Here's some programs we can do. So that from that standpoint is probably what I find the most helpful. Interesting. And how much, you know, from, cause I've never worked for uh, what I would say a more corporate environment. How much do they push down sort of the, the corporate marsh mentality on you guys versus letting you do your own thing? So, yeah, I mean, great question. I mean, one of the reasons I like like it here personally, and I haven't left. I mean, is because they allow us to be very entrepreneurial in terms of, hey, this is, you know, 
decisions are made on a local basis. So if you're out of Houston or Austin, you, you have a head of office and they allow you to kind of do things as you best see fit here. Of course, there's the, you know, the common corporate themes that you got to have, but in terms of like the, the kind of clients you want to go after, as long as they fit in terms of the revenue size, really you can run, take it and run with it and, you know, do whatever you think is best for you and your geographic region. So is there a, a bunch of automation sequences and technology that you guys use when you're marketing and going after people or do they just really give you a lot of freedom to where you can, if, if you know, if you're more of a, a cold calling guy, then you just use that Avenue and it's not like, like what's that aspect look like? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we're trying to adapt and integrate like the newsletter that will go out automatically to clients. And then if you see, if they click on a link, you can see where they clicked or prospects. Um, we, we have Salesforce, we have, some of that stuff. But I think there's, we're trying to learn just probably like a lot of other agencies because all the agencies we acquired were probably just like y'all's firm. Right. So it's, it's a learning curve. Um, but it, we've come a long way, I would say in the last five years, but yeah, I, a lot of it's, I still think comes down to the cold calling or the networking or the LinkedIn and kind of the basics. Um, but we don't have some secret, I guess, lead generation formula where it's like, Hey, here's a hundred leads or a hundred warm leads, go call them and close them kind of thing. Yeah, no, I mean, listen, and if you did, you wouldn't tell us anyhow, right? So, I mean, but no, I mean, I think it's interesting. That's, that's one thing that does kind of differentiate us. Um, I've spent way more money in technology than I would say a lot of my peers have just to make sure we have those, those systems in place. So, you know, Kyle and I are both of the mindset that cold calling is always going to be the best, in my opinion, anyhow, the best way to get in front of the people that you want, but by having those systems in place, it really helps you be more efficient in that process as opposed to just, you know, hunting with a shotgun and trying to spray everything. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we're pushing hard to, to get all, all of our producers using Salesforce consistently to have those processes in place. I've always just done it because I thought it made sense. I mean, why would I not want a CRM to basically tell me when to follow up call people and, and to make sure I can just log in on Monday and, Oh, here's what I got to do for the whole week. You know, to me, it makes complete sense. Um, but, but yeah, I'm like, you, I don't think cold calling is ever going to go away in terms of pinpoint pinpointing who you really want to speak to. No. And I mean, I think your value proposition only plays very well. If you sort of have that dialed in too. Are there specific market segments that you go after? Do you have any of you I have defined like specific industries where you feel like you really want to go deep uh, more than others? Yeah. So, I mean, I've construction's always been something when I was with Federated Insurance, I was the direct writer I was for, they, they started to get into contractors and I just felt like I was connected with them because they just didn't, they didn't play games. I mean, they kind of just wanted you to kind of hit them straight. And I just like that, that approach from my clients. Um, so I have gotten into that space. Now I know everyone plays in construction within Texas in particular, there's a lot of industrial um, along the coast that I started to get into when I first moved down here. So people going into plants um, and doing boiler work or tank cleaning and, and things like that. I've had a pretty good niche in. What kind of construction are you, are you messing with? We, we like service contractors, but if you want me to go deal with anybody doing new construction or general contractors or things like that, we'll, I'd, I'd refer that to somebody all day long. It, it doesn't work well in Florida, specifically because so many people are not, um, 
I don't want to alienate too many people with my comments, but at the same time, I think a lot of our workers' comp problems in the state are, can be attributed to what goes on in the construction industry here. So it's, it's a little bit of a unique environment, but the service contractors, the plumbers, HVACs, electricians, man, that's our bread and butter all day long. Yeah, I, I love the service guys, but I honestly haven't, man, I haven't called on them a lot only because there is a lot of competition there. Um, and I've done more of the heavy, I guess you'd say heavy industrial civil guys who are doing, well, right now a hot, hot market, I think, is the people drilling for like uh, Verizon. So those guys doing directional drilling and laying the wire line, that's been, uh, and they just, they have a lot of risk. They have a lot of vehicles, they have a lot of equipment and a lot of, you know, heavy labor. Um, but I've kind of played in that space. Like, so the grading um, and the site prep, we do have people that definitely do general contractors. I just haven't ever really focused on, on them myself. Yeah, I think that, that part of the, the reason that the competition is different there than it, was, than it is here is because we have state administered pricing on workers' comp. So there's no competitive advantage of going to one carrier to the other based on price. I mean, there could be cases made for claims handling and all of the you know, program structure and all of that. But you know, as far as the raw rate goes, it's legislated by the state of Florida. So everybody in 5183 is going to have the same base rate, period. And then it's your mod and whatever safety drug-free credits will you know, alter that. Whereas in Texas, you don't even have to have comp. I mean, that's yeah. what's that's what's crazy. So that is crazy. You know, for us, we you know we lead with workers' comp, specifically experience modification factor analysis, because that's a big differentiator for us. And what we found is that our competition here in Florida just basically throws their hands up and says, "Well, the comp's the comp. Let me focus on getting you a real good price on your auto or your GL." And in the meantime, we're going in and looking at all of the factors that are contributing to their premiums being what they are. And we're focusing on that uh, in, in with comp specifically on the mod. But I mean, a lot of times if you have bad comp performance, you have bad fleet performance. Your, your comp is affected by the accidents that you have on the fleet side. And so we look across the whole gamut of things from a risk management perspective and a, and a claims perspective. And we just don't find any competition at all. I can't tell you the number of times that we will go in and do an experience mod audit for somebody, talk to them about return to work, the right way to have return to work. And they've never heard that conversation before. It blows me away. And I can get on this podcast and there's people I compete against directly that I guarantee you are listening to me say this and they're still not going to change what they do. <laughs> no, I think, I think you're right. I mean, because the funny thing to me is uh, when I was with Federated, we had came out with not mod, mod master. I know is probably what y'all use. And a lot of people that, mm -hmm. that do take this serious use. Um, and we use the same tool, um, but we had, we had our own product and it was kind of a similar approach. And they said, Hey, we're going to be high. We're going to be high on price, but sell on, sell, you know, using this kind of dissect their mod and show them all these cool ideas. And it, a lot of reps had a lot of success um, getting into these contractors that way. And that was seven, eight years ago. So it's, um, surprising me that people don't use it, uh, that approach more. I think a lot of agents probably just start to feel like, yeah, no one cares. You know, no one cares about that. They just care about the bottom line dollar and they get in that mindset and then they just get in that trap instead of looking for the clients who actually value like you guys are doing, you know, the risk management and, and all the resources that we can bring. Well, I mean, the thing is, man, let's face it. The industry hasn't really changed in its approach in a hundred years. 
So, you know, there's a lot of people that can make a really comfortable living selling insurance as insurance salesmen. You know, my, one of my biggest lines is I don't want to ever be known for selling a product. I want to be known for solving problems. And if you solve problems for people, then you're always going to have a loyal client base. I don't, I don't want to get paid because I can sell you an insurance policy. I want to get paid because I'm giving you the best advice that I can give you, whether that means you inherit some risk and retain it uh, internally, or you finance it through the purchase of an insurance product externally. I don't really care. I want you to value what I bring to the table with my experience and my advice more than me coming in and saying, you know, I'll get you the best overall premium that you can get. We're, we're just, it, that's in fact, that's a number one way for me not to meet with somebody. If you, if you say, you want to quote my business this year? Nope. Thanks. Actually, I probably owe you an apology. I wasn't very articulate in how I described how my firm approaches things. And for that, I feel like I may have wasted your time, but we, we don't get involved in the quoting game. It's a, it's a commoditized shuffling of paperwork and you'll never get the best overall result if that's how you're going about your buying process. And it's interesting because I feel like that's how that industry is, the construction industry. I mean, so I, I knew that Texas was an, uh, a competitive you know, situation for the comp, but I didn't realize you didn't have to have comp. That, that's interesting to me. Yeah, they buy, you can buy a uh, occupational accident policy. Some people do that in an effort to uh, try and put a Band-Aid over it, but I'd be interested in, in Micah's yeah. thoughts on that because the, the fact is, what, this is what I have realized with Texas. And Micah, I don't, we don't write business in Texas now, but at my predecessor organization, we wrote master workers compensation policies for PEOs, and we had a, quite a few of the larger PEOs in Texas as clients. So this is something that we dealt with all the time. But it seems like the larger companies, the more middle market stuff, you really just don't run into them not buying comp. They're, they tend to be pretty responsible with how they think of things. It, it's usually the smaller businesses um, from what I've seen anyhow, but I, I'm interested in your comments on that. Yeah, great great question. Because when I first moved here too, I was like, well, you don't have to buy word comp. It was, mm-hmm. it was crazy to me. So, um, but you're right, David. I mean, everybody basically buys work comp because if you're in, especially if you're in construction, because in order to get on your client's job site or whatever in their building, you need to show a certificate and they're all, if they're smart, they're going to require comp. So it's almost like everyone has it. Um, however, the, the industries where it, where people absolutely don't buy it is um, a lot of times trucking companies won't carry it. And like, let's say manufacturers where again, they don't have to furnish certificates of insurance. Um, they'll all buy an OCAC policy. But here's the thing is the price of work comp has come down so much over the last, I mean, since I've been here, and um, there's just more and more competition coming to Texas as well. Texas Mutual dominated the market for a while and still they're a great partner and, and still do write a lot of business, but now other players are getting in because it's just a more profitable line. And uh, it doesn't even really honestly even make sense to buy even the OCAC product versus just a standard comp because you're not saving a whole lot and you, and you bring on a little bit more, you're taking on more liability, more risk as a business in terms of being able to be sued um, and just easier to easier to manage if you just buy the the, the work comp versus some of the admin stuff you got to buy if you go the OCAC policy. Um, so, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. That whole thing just sort of blows my mind. And, you know, one of the things, and I don't know if it's still this way or not, you're right. Texas mutual is a, a good partner, but it was so foreign to me because in Florida, when you go to the state fund, you know, it's, it's going to be at least triple the premium in most cases, whereas Texas mutual, which 
is also the market of last resort in Texas, or at least it was when we were doing business there, we're, we're also a competitor. Like they could competitively price. We don't have that luxury here. So it was kind of interesting. If you got into the right account, Texas Mutual would just go clean everybody's plow if they wanted to. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't, and I, I honestly don't know if, I don't think Texas Mutual is a state, a state fund. They're a mutual privately held insurance company. They just got, they have a dividend program um, here in, in Texas, which a lot of other carriers don't have. Um, actually, maybe I know of maybe one other one that has. So the law, then they'll never tell you know, their client what the amount their dividend will be. Um, or they can't even so weird. tell us how it's calculated. So, uh, but every year you'll see, I mean, I've, I have some clients, one client, uh, tank cleaner, he's paying 37 grand for his comp. He got a dividend check this for year for 30,000. So net solid return there, <laughs> seven grand, you know, but then two years ago, he got a dividend check for 16 grand, which is still nice, but why did it go up? And his mod, he still has never had any accidents. His mod is as, as low as it can be a 0.7 something. Um, so it's just, it's kind of hmm. interesting, but that's how. Did his company size drastically change? No, no company size did not change. So that's kind Weird. of the volatility of the dividends. Um, yeah. But it's just, uh, that's why people don't really want to leave either because they know the longer they've been with them, your dividends are going to go up for the most part. If you, if you, hmm. you know, have good claims experience. They use that against you if you try and leave too. Oh yeah. Yeah. As an agent. Yeah. I mean, I, t I tell all my clients, I'm like, Hey, if you want to leave Texas mutual, you know, here's, let's say CNA is coming in really hot on the comp. They're going to save you 20 grand off the bat, or here's your dividend. And you can kind of wait, do you want to take the money now or, or hope you get a dividend back, but it's never guaranteed although they paid it for as long as they've been in business. And we can't tell you how much it's going to be or how they calculate it. So <laughs> you get to take door number three or what you can quantify now. I think that's one of the interesting things about the way that it works here is there are so many different ways that they can structure um, dividends or comp policies in general. I don't know if you guys have the ability to, to have people write on a paid and incurred loss retro basis there. Um, high, de high deductible stuff, you know, that's probably a little bit further upstream than where we're going to be, you know, playing most of the time. But if, if you just live in the normal bread and butter middle market, you know, I went into an account that was referred to me by one of my, my clients that, you know, it's a reasonably sized account. It's not, you know, if I'm actually going out to, to focus on prospecting, it's probably below the threshold of what I would look at, but it's about 150,000 in premium all in. And um, the, the comp on it was right around $40,000 and I looked at it and they were with a carrier on a 10% guaranteed flat dividend and they had a 0.77 mod. And, and so the reason why that is significant is because in Florida, you can get a flat dividend, you can get a sliding scale dividend, or you can get a hybrid. Mm -hmm. And so we have carriers that will do the 10% flat with a slider on the back end that if you have a really good year, they're going to reward you for that performance with a dividend, you know, an additional dividend payment. So my question when I went in, you know, and listen, the, the people that, that, you know, the agent that was on this account is a good agent. The agency is a good agency. And when I looked at the piece of business, I'm like, I really don't know what value I'm going to be able to bring here. Because I started, you know, peeling the layers back. I, I just asked the guy, why are you settling 
for a 10% flat dividend? Well, because we're a relatively conservative company and we wanted to make sure we were guaranteed to get something. I said, you guys have a 0.77 mod. I understand that you could have a shock loss, but with the performance that you've had and the way that comp carriers structure things, you should be on a hybrid. You should be getting the guaranteed 10% with the chance to recoup an additional 15 to 25% on the back end if you continue to have the same performance that you have right now. And he had never even heard of it, which, bl which blows my mind. But I mean, that's the kind of crazy stuff that you run into is, you know, you get an agent that's asleep at the wheel and they think that they're doing their client a favor. And then it's just enough to get by. The next thing you know, you come in and somebody knows of a product that's, that's a better product. I mean, the, again, there's no premium difference. Mm -hmm. It's just what we can do on the, on the dividend structure. So yeah, you're guaranteed your 10. And now we can give you the opportunity to earn all of this other back. And it was a significant amount of money because we're getting crucified on auto rate here right now. It's terrible. Yeah. It's the same. Yeah. Autos, auto and excess and, and well, be and property as well is just tough. But um, yeah, when I was in Wisconsin, we actually had the same kind of deal, the sliding dividends. And again, it ultimately comes back to you were the one who told them that. And I think, I think what kills a lot of agents, you know, I think they're good. A lot of agents are, think they're working hard. They're doing the right job, but, you know, it depends on your model. You, that first year, you maybe put a lot of effort in. you check what marketing did or you market it yourself. And then, you know, the second renewal, the third renewal comes and all of a sudden your account managers out there just getting renewal quotes. And they're, this is no offense to account managers, but they're just not, they don't care as much as producers, you know, care, I don't think. And they don't, they kind of are trained to kind of check the boxes, look and make sure that they won't get an E&O, but they're not thinking strategically and they're not really that's not really in my opinion that's not really their job uh, that's really a producer's job I think an advisor right is to t at least be looking through those options and, and advising the client on like you just said you know why not take the risk there's no downside to it and well and actually I say the same thing with uh, with small captives right now I think it's pretty interesting I know there's a lot more hoops you got to jump through but man I, I see some businesses out there where it's like even on the downside if you take your GL your comp and your auto throw it into this group captive, you could save, let's just say 40%. Um, I know you have to go to some meetings and stuff like that, but you're already doing all the right things. And the downside, I think people hear the word captive and they think like, Oh my God, I could have like $2 million losses. Well, it's like, you'll know what your max problem, you know, loss could be. And, and to me, the downside just doesn't, doesn't justify staying put, you know? Yeah. And the way they have those smaller ones structured, anyhow, there's a lot of protections there. It's really, you know, it, it's interesting because when I started my career, calling on middle market accounts, you, the agency that I was at gave us, we were five tool players, man. We could go in, we could write high net worth, personal lines, uh, group benefits, life 401k or the property and casualties. So there was always an opportunity to make money on the table if you could figure out what the pain point was. And there would be times where I would go in and be leading with comp and realize the reason the comp performance was bad is because the benefits sucked and mm -hmm. we needed to look and have a benefits conversation because if they, you know, gave some voluntary benefit options and maybe threw a disability plan in there that the loss ratio on the comp would drop. And it really, you know, you, it's a shell game with the money at that point, but you know, where I'm going with this is it's amazing how similar the structure of those self-insured or partially self-insured benefits plans are compared to how workers comp works. So if you understand 
the mechanics of workers comp, you can also go in and do a pretty good job of selling benefits too. And I think in, in, to bring it back to what you originally said, when you structure those self-insured benefits programs, you're putting the specific loss, you know, stop losses and all of those things on the policies. Those captives have that to protect Mm -hmm. the business. So it's not like you're going in and there's a blank check on the back end. It's not, there's a stop loss there that's going to protect you in that, in, in that case. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. It was, it was weird. I was, I met with, um, I got my foot in the door at a really large company here. I mean, 2000 plus employees, road contractor, a billion dollars in revenue. And the guy was not on a, any type of group captive. Um, and, and I was, he's like, yeah, we, we have some higher, you know, um, higher deductibles and stuff. And he's like, I just don't see what's the point. He's like, our rates are so good. And he wouldn't, we had a, we had two first meetings. We, you know, brought in our captive expert, just talk to him about even letting us just do a feasibility study and just show you. Cause we, I didn't know what his numbers actually were, but he's like, no, no, I think our rates have been really flat. They were in cell. We've been with travelers all these years. And I'm, I said, you might be in a great spot, but I, it, why would you not at least want the feasibility study done to see kind of if it makes sense to go the group captive route. But I think people just, they don't want to do the extra work and, and maybe to these really large companies to them, paying, you know, a million dollars for insurance isn't that big of a deal, you know, even though to us, it seems like it, it should be, but that might be one of the reasons why I think there's not more people jumping into that pool. So you do a lot of stuff on LinkedIn, man, as do I, I'm interested in the ROI that you're seeing from that. Is there, I mean, are you getting prospects from your your LinkedIn stuff that you're putting out? I mean, you're extremely consistent with it, man. You get props for that. The content you put out is good. You're consistent about getting it out. I have to believe that you're getting some level of traction with it. And if you're not, my advice to you is stick with it because you will. But I'm interested in how that's playing out for you. Yeah. Um, so my ROI, if I would go just by the book is, is zero at this point. I haven't had any legit business come through from it. Um, I have had some good conversations with a couple of business owners that have reached out, they're just too small for, for us. And they'd be too small for even yourself and any, and in really a lot of agencies, um, which is fine. Um, I don't mind helping those people out. And, but I have, I've had like two or three leads where it's, it's, I don't know if it's from my content or it's more me proactively engaging with them and actually following them and then seeing what they're posting, commenting on their stuff, adding relevant comments and, and building up some rapport that way. So I had a good prospect come in last year that way. Um, I didn't end up closing because he has a really good relationship, but we've met with kind of, you know, now it's a warm lead, I guess you'd say a good relationship. And I have one other big deal this year. I'm, I'm working on that. That was, I would attribute to LinkedIn and kind of building that relationship first. I think one of the frustrations is that it doesn't seem like a lot of the decision makers, the CFOs, the CEOs, business owners are really, using LinkedIn in that way yet. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to change. I just don't know when it's going to happen. I think I'm 34. So I think it'll happen in my lifetime because it it just has to, I would, I would think. Um, So for me, it's a long-term play. So I'm going to, I'm going to tell you something. And this is, this is the fact that my beard is now turning white or the lack, you know, what my minimal beard that I'm able to grow (laughs) is turning white, but I was an early, early adopter of LinkedIn. Um, like way back in the early 2000s. And I just, I saw it and I'm like, this is a really good concept. I think this is going to go somewhere. So 
I started using it, learning it and everything else. And back in those days, the decision makers were on there and they were, they were using it. And I watched over the next 10 years, a complete shift in the content that was on there, who was using it, who was there to receive it. And I'll tell you what, man, I think that self-serving salespeople <laughs> ruined LinkedIn more than anything else. And, and I, I don't mean people that are putting valuable content out like yourself. I'm talking mm -hmm. about people that are out basically putting up used car commercials in the LinkedIn newsfeed and it drove people away. And I've started to see it sort of come back around full circle a little bit. Uh, but I still think very much that if you look at where LinkedIn is right now, it is geared more towards salespeople than anything else. And I think that that's probably how a lot of your C-suite people view it at this point. Yeah. I, I mean, if I look, so I, like you said, I put out content regularly. I have for now a year and a couple months and I could literally probably go start a consulting business on, <laughs> for insurance agencies because I get hit up by agents. Hey, can I, can you coach me on this? Or I'd like to pick your brain on this probably three, four times a week, you know, and I'm not even trying to, that's not a business I'm trying to get into. That's nothing I really care to do. Now I'm happy to help these people. And I've, I've made some good connections with other agents and I've gotten like podcasts, right? I've gotten on some podcasts, which is good for exposure, but I'm not seeing like a return on it from a business standpoint. So yeah, you see these people, the LinkedIn advertisers, this is your way to grow. It's, I think it depends who's your target audience. I mean, if you're trying to sell to salespeople or if you're a real estate agent, or, yeah, you should absolutely be on LinkedIn every single day. I'd you know, spend tons of time on there. Yeah, from an insurance agency standpoint or agent producer, I would spend, you know, I don't know, 30 minutes a day to an hour, whatever, you know, connecting with people, following people, seeing what's going on, posting relevant content. But I, if you're expecting it to get rich on, it's uh, not going to happen, I don't think. Uh, I would say it's a shame that um, things have changed that way. I kind of noticed the same thing with email. Um, <laughs> feels like email used to be such an effective sales tool when I got into sales back in 2008. Now it's like, I can't even get a reply ever. I don't well, know if I, the same struggle. I, I think you will see a return on that, at, you know, as you keep at it, but there's definitely a difference between putting out content and doing the stuff that has driven people away where they're, you know, just, blind sending you, you know, messages about their products that they think that you would like. That's completely different. I do want to talk about one of the posts you had because it's one of my pet peeves, or I at least laugh about it whenever it happens. Um, and I'm sure other agents do as well, but there's people on here that are listening that don't understand this. Um, so if you could elaborate on the whiting out of the premium uh, <laughs> content. That he I, I was wondering where you were going to go with that. And, yeah. and before you answer, Micah, my all time favorite is the one who they don't white it out, but they use a marker. But then when they put it on their <laughs> scanner to send it to you, the backlight allows the numbers to go through uh, anyhow. And so I just ignore it. Like I don't, I don't address the fact that I could see it. But what I do is I put a pricing comparison and I use all the numbers that they had attempted to black out in the comparison when we, when we uh, sent them some things over. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's so funny, man. I remember um, being at Federated. Our, when we issued our policies, my manager was like, okay, when you get the policies and before you deliver it, white out all the premiums so any competing agents don't have it. I'm like, okay, whatever, you know. But um, yeah, it's... <laughs> What, what spurned on that video is, especially when I was quoting, as you guys don't really do anymore, and I don't either, you know, we go on BOR, but especially if you're quoting, like, 
whiting out the premiums make zero sense for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, you're hurting yourself because this other agent's trying to go to the marketplace and they, they obviously, those markets don't have much interest in if someone, if they don't even know the starting point. And I think that's the whole reason I had made that video. Like you're only hurting yourself. Um, again, I think all roads lead back to once you start to have these conversations with business owners is why not just hire an agent. But if you're going to quote, at least keep the premiums on there. So people know a starting point. I always say this too, it's an expiring premium. So it's, it's old, doesn't matter. Things change from year to year. And um, that's just, I was talking with one agent one time. I said, you know, drop that because um, saying that at least the business owner is like, okay, I'm giving you last year's price anyways. It doesn't really matter. Um, but, but what killed me is I, my approach is to do due diligence and to review the policies. And I tell people I'm not going to market and I'd still have some people that would want to white out the premiums. I'm like, I don't think you understand. <laughs> I'm trying to do some analysis for you, trying to even see if your rates are, your rates might be the best they can be. There might be no, nothing I can do with risk management or anything to, to help you in that category. Don't you at least want to know how you compare to your peers? And um, so that, that's probably what spurned that video on is I probably had an experience like that. Uh, I just think some buyers are just so entrenched of, I can't show a price, yep. can't show a price. You know, they're in that uh, price versus value mentality that we're talking about earlier. And it's, uh, you know, they're shopping like it's a commodity, like it's a a tangible, you know, product that they can buy where price is the only thing that matters. But um, I just thought that was interesting. You know, I I, I watched that earlier and and laughed. I've had (laughs) had current I've had current clients white out their premiums when they send stuff to me. I'm like, dude, I know your premium. I'm your agent. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. who are you really whiting that out like, for, by the way, do I need uh, to be concerned that you're <laughs> competing already? Right. Exactly. Yeah. That, that's, it's funny. That video, I remember I was in, I was at that time I had an apartment. I was like randomly, I think I got done feeding my dog and I had the thought because I think an experience had happened and I was like, I'm just going to shoot this video real quick. And it ended up being probably one of the most popular videos I've ever done because so many can relate to it that it's just so it's so annoying it doesn't make any sense and i think just and it may just be complete ignorance of people that just don't understand you know that that that's completely taking away their leverage um but still it is a a source of frustration for many agents yes yeah (laughs) yeah so let me ask you this michael what's your content production strategy i mean you keep it simple right i mean did you do exactly what i would what i do basically i mean i I'll put transcripts, you know, or what or subtitles or whatever on some of the videos that I record. But I mean, I think that just doing raw video content with a selfie style cell phone shot gets people's attention way more than if you put a ton of production quality into it. That has always worked better for me than, you know, trying to, to, to spruce it up. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. And I think, cause it comes across as more genuine and I use the same approach I use for prospecting as I do on LinkedIn, which is cut out all the glitz and glamour, just kind of get straight to the point. So even when I cold call people, it's, Hey, would you be open to a conversation about your insurance program? I have zero interest in quoting or bidding, but we have a different approach. And I just want to see if you, you ever do any sort of due diligence and that's it, you know? And then, cause I think so many people, Hey, we can save you X and do this and that. And then it's like every salesperson's out there trying to say that. So I just take the opposite approach and just keep it direct and to the point. And then it makes cold calling a lot easier as well. I mean, you don't, you're not fumbling over your, you know, some fancy script. And so I take that same concept with LinkedIn and just try to shoot it straight. Do you, do you read a lot of books? I do. Um, not a, a lot of sales books. I'll be honest, just burn me out because they're just. Yeah. I don't read any sales. I honestly don't read sales books at all. Um, it's funny. Somebody asked me 
I was on somebody's podcast. I don't remember who it is, but they asked me what's the best sales book that I've ever read. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't even know that I've ever read a sales book. I, I read the little red book of selling and I read the art of selling like back when I was 18, 19 years old, but um, I can't think through it, but I was going to ask you, have you ever read um, never split the difference by Chris Voss? So I read the, uh, do you follow Josh Brown? I do. Um, I do. So he, he, uses a lot of his stuff within his posts and that's how I learned about Chris Voss. So I have watched some of his videos on YouTube. Um, he's been interviewed by some other sort of video channels I watch. And uh, I would I highly, I would highly recommend that you read that book and don't read it through anybody else's filter. Not that Josh Braun's stuff is, isn't good. It's, he has excellent content, but I, I mean, that's probably the most impactful book that I have read in the last decade wow. and just read it. And, and let it work in your own mind as to how you can apply it. It is not a sales book by any stretch. It is 100% about the art of negotiation in the context that Voss was a, a hostage negotiator, but he gets really in depth into how the subconscious mind works and how you frame things. And one of the things that I learned from reading that book was that no is actually good. And yes, is actually bad in, in a lot of context. A lot of times people will tell you, know, all of the sales books would say, get to yes, get to yes as fast as you can, blah, 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 blah. A lot of times when you get to yes, they're just guessing you to get you to shut up and get out of there. Or they're giving you yes because they don't know how to tell you no. Or they're giving you yes because they want you to keep talking so they can get as much information as they can from you, but they're never gonna hire you. Yeah. If you get them to know subconsciously, they feel like they're in control of the conversation at that point. So I have actually gone back and changed a lot of my scripting and how I ask questions and things to allow them to give me a no answer first, because subconsciously, they feel like they're controlling the, the conversation at that point. And I got to tell you, man, it works like a charm. So I mean, for people huh. listening to this, if you want to really up your game a read chris's book it's fantastic but b focus on that piece of it and i'm going to give you an example an example of that would be if i'm picking up the phone to telemarket somebody and i get the person on the phone instead of me immediately going into a, trying to set an appointment or get a yes out of them i'll give them a question along the lines of you know i'm calling you today because i've gotten your preliminary experience modification factor from NCCI and it's going up again this year. Are you happy that you're paying 65% more for your workers comp than your peer group is? Hmm. And the answer is no, right? Well, now they feel like if it's yes, then that's a very short conversation. Um, but if it's, if it's no, then you can immediately move. Well, would it make sense to explore ways that you might be able to improve your position in the marketplace and ultimately lower your total cost of risk? And there's your yes. Yeah. So Sounds because, like a good book. I wish there was a copy of it somewhere that somebody had. That they could <laughs> have you know what? And I could have easily given it to you easily. when you came over, came over and picked up your stuff for Nash the other day. I completely spaced on it. <laughs> Oh, well, but I mean, it's interesting psychology, Micah, because, you know, I think sometimes I'm, I'm probably a little bit different in the way that I'm willing to adapt and try new things, but my approach has worked for so long 
And it's mm -hmm. still so much different than my competition's approaches, even just how we go in and, and begin the meetings and, and the research that we do prior and all of that. I haven't really needed to modify anything, but I got to tell you, man, the level of success has gone through the roof by getting people to know faster. And it just, it blew my mind. Like literally everything I've tried from this guy's book and made it into uh, my regimen has worked. So that's my gift to you, man. If you read any book in the near future, I would definitely, definitely pick that book up and read it. It's not salesy. It's interesting. You get a good behind the scenes look at how the FBI works, but you can use, there's so many things that are tangible that we can put into our careers. It's just fantastic. Well, yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. I'm going to going to check it out. I think at one point I had bought maybe the high level executive, you know, that you can buy like 299 versions of books yeah, and get the high level notes on With it. Notes. So I'm going to have to go read that again. Yeah. I mean, it honestly, it's a pretty easy read. Even, even the full thing, it's not like it's a super thick, you know, art of war type, you know, or Don Quixote or something like that. It's, it's a couple hundred pages at the most. And if you just pop 10, 15 pages a day, you're done in two weeks. Perfect. Yeah, it's, it, it's a good one. So, so listen, when you're out prospecting, how do you, and if there's secret sauce, just say, look, man, there's secret sauce. I'm not going to give up the goods on, on, on a podcast, but I mean, I'm interested in how do you, how do you sort of fill your pipeline? Like what's your goal when you sit down to look at who you're going to go after over the course of the next 12 months? If you, I don't know if you construct a personal business plan or not. I do every year and I ask that my producers do the same. Um, but I'm interested in sort of what your starting point is and how you refine that to, to give you the, the, the highest hit ratio possible. Yeah. Um, yeah, I sit down every year. I mean, we, as an organization, we, we, we have to anyways, but I do it. Um, you sit down, I look through kind of month by month when people, you know, are expiring, not saying I'm trying to quote them, but just in my mind to think through, okay, when's revenue going to hit. And, um, in my mind, you know, anywhere from, usually six to 10 new clients a year is going to get me the revenue that I would uh, like to be at, right. Or more. Um, so it kind of really just, it's, it's, and it's hard to explain because I guess it, now that I've been doing it for six years, I feel like you have it's just a constant, you know, you're, you're constantly out there with the same type of prospects, the same people that are long-term sales, you know, you're just building a relationship with them, but every year it's like, okay, I'm going to touch this guy, you know, three, four times. Uh, with outreach. And um, I guess I, I kind of just look through the businesses that I want to work with from um, that I know have risk also that I know that I've had success with uh, me personally and us as an agency, you know, and I try to stay within those categories for the most part. I don't really just randomly call, you know, a jeweler or someone like that. It's, it's uh, I stay pretty tight to what I know I do well just because I know going into those meetings, I can speak with confidence and then I know we can deliver as well uh, versus, like I said, trying to go write a jeweler and hope we can deliver. And I have to go do research on what market to write best. Um, that's just waste a lot of time. I, yeah, I agree. I think that there's a lot of times people, people don't get that. I got into a little bit of a, a little bit of a scrape in an online forum this weekend because the question came up about, minimum revenue per account for producers and why an agency would do that versus why they wouldn't. And I'm a firm believer 
that if you're an outside producer, you shouldn't, you should never call on anything below $5,000 in agency revenue, period. And meanwhile, you know, I'm in a group of agency owners and you've got people that are scratch agents that are saying, well, I'm not turning any business away. I'm a brand new business. I need all the revenue I can get. Well, that's great. And, and I mean, the one person even made mention of a $50 renter's policy. Like they're not even going to turn that away. And I'm thinking, wow, this is, this is kind of where the industry is, right? Like some people just think you should write anything because it's revenue. And that's the problem. I think that when, when, when agencies and agency owners look at things through that lens, if, you know, number one, there's a subset of agencies that talk about their numbers in premium. And then there's a subset that talk about their agencies in revenue. Most of the time, I'm going to align with the same people that are talking about things in terms of revenue. Mm-hmm. Agencies that talk about premium are typically smaller, more Main Street agencies, and there's nothing wrong with either of the two. It's just a different thought process. But my thought process is, if you're out writing accounts that are losing profit, you, you know, you're not making a profit on them, they're losing money for your agency, writing more of them doesn't help you. It actually makes it worse. So if I'm a scratch agency and I'm writing unprofitable business, I'm not really doing what I can to get my agency off the ground by writing more unprofitable business. You know, and it's a difficult thing to do, man. I mean, I've been a producer before. I still am. But I mean, I've been in that, at that point where, you know, if you're, you know this, if you're, if you're looking to write six to 10 accounts a year, you're not even bringing in one account a month. If no. you're a newer producer and you don't have a process in place and understand that you just got to continue to work that process, that, at the end, that if your results are measured over the course of the entire year, it's going to be okay. But I think sometimes we need validation and we need instant gratification and we get that through going out and writing something, getting something on the books. And that couldn't be further from the truth as to what's good for the agency. I think agency owners are so worried about seeing a constant stream of activity that they force some of these behaviors by getting people to go out and write anything. Whatever you can get, man, write the $3,000 ENS policy that's going to cancel 10 times for non-payment. <laughs> you know, yeah. they, it makes them feel good about themselves. I, I'm of the opinion that as long as I hit, you know, a quarter million or more a year in revenue, I don't care if that comes in in one account or 10 accounts. I just want to hit that number. And that's yeah. why I always have big rocks that I'm juggling. There, there are always three or four large commercial opportunities in my pipeline. And by large, I mean between 50 and 100,000 in revenue. The rest of them, I'll stay, you know, anywhere. I like to be between 25 and 50, but probably anywhere between 10 and 50,000 in revenue. I've got a very robust pipeline of that stuff. I won't even, I don't want anything to do with something that's $2,000 in premium. First off, we probably don't have the right market for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, my agency's not set up to write that kind of business. And it's, in, it's just interesting when, you're, when you get into groups of uh, agencies of all shapes and sizes in different parts of the country, how, how they view that. Like, what's, your, right? what's your argument back for the person who's trying to say, well, $2,000 is $2,000, man. Like, how, well, how do you make <laughs> them understand that, okay, that's true. However, <laughs> you could be losing money on that. 
I guess tell them to go talk with your service team and also look mm-hmm. at your capacity for growth. It's like my, so my wife's an account manager. Uh, so I hear firsthand, you know, how much it sucks to service some accounts, right? Especially if they're not going to be profitable. It's like, what's the point? And that's the hard part. Insurance isn't tangible. So it's not like you're making a tangible product and like, Oh, we're not losing money. You know, like you said, you know, 2000 is 2000, but it's like, mm-hmm. look at the time invested, but then also your own time going forward. It's like, you got to get that concept of how important your time is. So you can really hit the big ones like David was talking about. And um, same as you, David, I mean, every year I have that one, it's, I don't know what it is the last five years. I have that one account. That's that 50 to 125 range that I hit. Right. And then the, the other ones I'll fill in that are 15 to 30 or 40, you know, but it just, it's great security as well, but it just seems to be the way that, that it works out. Yeah. I would never be able to have my whole pipeline full of a hundred thousand dollar accounts just because even if your whole pipeline is full of those, the sales timeline on those accounts is so much different. And, you know, there's times where on those larger accounts, I've worked two and three years before I get in Mm -hmm. to the point where I actually can bring it on board. So I, I, I'm very apprehensive about having more than about three or four that I'm actively working on. And then if I close one of them, I'll replace it with the next one on the list. But, you know, the, to my, my argument to the people that is the, you know, the $2,000 in premium, if they, were to, if they were to come in and ask me, you know, why I wouldn't do that, it's because A, I don't know that I have the markets for it. B, experience has taught me that those people are number one, going to be way more service than an average middle market account is shockingly. And number three, they're only going to shop on price because there is zero value that can be delivered. I'm sorry, but if you're an agency out there and your idea of a value proposition is we're going to get you good rates and we'll get your certificates to you really fast, you need to invest in systems and processes to get you into the next uh, decade, because the fact is right now that's customer service and that's expected. You know, you need to do what you can to provide a client experience. And the other thing is, you know, I've been on record multiple times saying this, but if you're playing in that range, you're not even competing against other agencies. You're competing against Google, Amazon, Mm -hmm. you know, big data, anybody who has data that has the ability to automate a quoting process any of that stuff is going to get gobbled up by artificial intelligence and venture capital money. And if you built your whole agency off of that, well, I'm sorry, you know, we've been trying to tell you. (laughs) Yeah, that's uh, not a, not a good strategy. I wouldn't say either. Now I have noticed that even we've done this, we have created a small business unit um, that does actually extremely well because we've created a process to where it's uh, very, just process driven, right? So we kind of know who fits in that little box. If it's a referral and they're just too small, but we don't want to burn that bridge or have that relationship at jeopardy, you know, but even then we still have minimums and I, I still don't think we'll do anything for 500 bucks or a thousand, you know, in terms of revenue that probably at least have to be 1500 to, you know, five, six grand of revenue where it would make sense. And, and it has to be a layup. We're not going to make them do marketing work on it. It's like, no, this is a done deal. Here you go. Well, I mean, Mm -hmm. look at it from the overall profitability of the agency too. You have a $500 account and it has one reasonably large claim. You just blew your whole loss ratio because you brought that smaller account in. It didn't have the premium to sustain its losses. And they're typically not a sophisticated enough business to have a lot of the programs in place 
to avoid having losses like that. You know, they they don't have return to work. They don't, you know, so which means we would have to do all of that for them, which then goes back to my argument that you're losing money on the account because you're having to invest in it. And the number one argument that came back in that entire thread was, well, you know, you don't know how big it's going to be. You don't know how much that's going to grow. You can write some of these little ones and they grow into these awesome accounts over time. And my response to that was, you know what? You're absolutely right. I guess the difference from my point of view is I would rather go after the accounts that are already the size this one could grow to than waste my time in hopes and prayers that this thing will actually get off the ground and grow to the level of the middle market. And by the way, if it's 25,000 in revenue in the middle market, those are, like there's no hard, fast rule that says, okay, we're at 25,000 in insurance revenue. We, th- we need to stop growing now. No, they grow too. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you know and, if an account's going to grow or not. Give me a break. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, here's the other thing that's funny about that too, is let's say it does grow and you, you, you put all your blood, sweat and tears when it's paying you nothing and it finally grows. Well, guess who's calling on them? All the, all the other <laughs> brokers who play in that space and your client might just leave you anyways. I mean, why would they be loyal to you? They might feel they outgrown you because they're like, ah, I just need to change, right? Yeah, or in their mind, you know, we've been with you for eight years and it's just time for a change. Well, great. You know, <laughs> you just basically bent me over, you know, <laughs> after I invested in you all of this time. It's just, there's so many reasons not to do it. But again, man, I mean, that's one of the things that makes our industry pretty cool is different strokes for different folks. There's all kinds of shapes and sizes of agencies, people that, specialize in other, it's like non-standard auto. Some of the wealthiest agency owners that I know own agencies that do nothing but non-standard auto. That Mm. sounds like the worst job ever. I do not (laughs) want to have to sit and write 10, 20, 10 auto. So somebody can get their tag or their license renewed, or they got a DUI and they need an SR 22 or any of these other things. I want nothing to do with it. But I know guys, and especially in states like Texas, where you can put a service fee on top of the commission mm-hmm. to get it, they're just printing money. They're, and, and I understand the logic behind what they're doing by charging a service fee. The fact that the account, can't, if it cancels for non-pay or whatever, is really irrelevant because they're not counting that as their revenue as much as they are the service fee is the hedge that protects them. If they, if these accounts actually stay on the books, that's all bonus money in their mind. But they, it's, it's just crazy how many times, and sometimes with the same people over and over again that are canceling for non-pay and three months later, they come back, they have to get insurance again, boom, another service fee. You would never think about that. It's not something I would want to do, but I can't argue against the profitability of it based on the business models of the people that I know that have been successful doing it. Well, I was at a CIC once and this guy's made a comment, you know, he's like, and he was out of Michigan or somewhere. And he said, you know, I don't look at my agency as an insurance agency. I'm, I'm a marketing agency. So I think the people like you said, David, that are, have that mindset, they just maybe want to make the money and just, they don't view themselves as insurance people. They're just like, that's just the end product, but I, I'm just trying to make money and that's how I make it. So yeah, it's that, that wouldn't appeal to me at all. That would seem boring. <laughs> And monotonous, but I guess if, if that's your drive is just simply to make the money, then then I guess, yeah, you are what you are. You know, you're a marketing agency. Well, I got one more question for you. What advice would you give anybody who was starting out in the insurance industry as a producer today? Wow. That's a, there's a lot of different ways I could go with this. Um, 
I'll, I'll say a couple things. So first is don't listen to fake news that cold calling is dead. <laughs> I think um, a lot of producers out there kind of get this, they come in and they're like, I, I got to go do all this tons of networking and all this other stuff. It's like, dude, you're a young person, just hit the phones and start trying to have conversations and be consistent in that. Um, you, you'll, you will talk to people that want to talk with you, uh, if you if you're saying the right messaging. Um, the second thing I would say is going with the mindset of not quoting business and whether your agency allows it or not. Mine, thankfully, we had a very forward thinking CEO at the time. And he's like, you guys, the younger guys here, you're not quoting anything. And, and uh, that was a shock for me when I moved down here because I had only quoted at Federated. I had to. Um, so I would say, take that mindset up yourself of, like you said, David earlier, you're not, we're not, you know, the product, the price is the price, but I'm really an advisor. You know, that's, that's who I am. I'm selling myself and what I can do for clients, what problems I can solve, uh, what resources I can bring to the table. And I think if you view yourself that way and start working your first conversations around that way, you're going to stand out from a lot of other agents who are calling on your, you know, on, on prospects. So I agree, man. Well, listen, we've been going about an hour. We need to wrap up. How can they find you if they want to hear more? Yeah. Um, LinkedIn's the best way, really. I would say um, just my contact info's on there, my cell phone, my email, shoot me a message. I'm always willing to help out people and uh, have conversations with, with people. Listen, man, it's been a pleasure having you on. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. I wish you nothing but the best in the future. Please know that if you, um, if I could ever be a resource to you in any way, shape or form, feel free to reach out, even if it's just to, uh, you know, brainstorm and bounce ideas off and, you know, I'm going to selfishly do the same. So at least there could be some reciprocity there. Yeah, absolutely. I'll take you up on that. Sounds good, man. Micah, have a great week, man. And again, really appreciate the time you spent with us today. All right. Take care, guys. Have a good fourth. You've been listening to the Power Producers Podcast. You can follow Killing Commercial Insurance on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to take your game to the next level, next level, check out our book, The Extra Two Minutes, and our website, killingcommercial.com. 